Good morning. My name is Steve, and I'm the pastor of our church. And in just a moment, uh, Dr. David Scholler will be bringing the word of the Lord to us today, or preaching, as we normally say. And we're delighted to have him here. He is a New Testament scholar at Fuller Theological Seminary, has taught at a number of other seminaries, and really uh, one of the leading scholars in our nation in the New Testament and, and around the world. And it's a delight to have him as a part of our fellowship here at First Baptist Church. But rather than go into all the things David has done and written and so forth, I like to know people on a little different level, more informal level. So, David, come up. We're going to do an interview. Unfortunately, you've seen too many of these, so you know what's coming. But uh, right. <laughs> anyhow, where are you from? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Rochester, Minnesota. Burr. Oh, it was a wonderful city. A wonderful place. Uh, in Rochester, if you can go back to when you were a boy of 10, 11, 12 years old, what did you do in the summertime for fun? Or maybe the winter. I guess they have winter there? They have winter yeah. there, yes. What did you do for fun? Well, I liked to play softball. Uh, I went to camp. Uh, I learned to swim at about that time, which I hated. <laughs> but uh, And then I, I had a lot of strange hobbies. Uh, one thing some friends of mine and I did, this will sound weird and in 2005, but we cut out comic strips from the newspaper, and then we taped them together. We wound them up on sticks, and then had a cardboard box with a little window so we could turn the sticks. And we charged other kids five cents to come and see our movies. I didn't realize you were an entrepreneur, but uh, that's good. All right, and you're married to Jeanette, and tell us about your children, your family. Uh, Jeanette and I have been married 45 years, which has been absolutely wonderful. We have... Yeah, amen. We have two daughters. Our older daughter is named Emily. She's married to a man named Dan. They have three young children at this point, aged one, two, and three. Oh, boy. They live in Montgomery, Illinois, which is near Aurora, which is west of Chicago. And their three-year-old will turn four this week. Uh, our younger daughter is Abigail. She is a Ph.D. student in social psychology at Columbia University in New York City, and she is sitting next to Jeanette Wright at this moment. Good morning. That's great. Um, okay, here's, here's the question. If, if we had a platinum card here, not some cheap gold card, but a platinum card, belonged to First Baptist, they gave it to you and said, we're going to pay the bill, you don't have to pay it off, you have six months, you don't have to go to Fuller, you can do what you want, what would you do with that platinum card for six months? I think that uh, within the limits that I have, I'd travel as much as I could. Amen. And any jokes or stories? One of the things I didn't know about David till I became a pastor here was, uh, I think better than your scholarship is just all the jokes you know. I, I sure hope you put those in a book for us poor pastors sometime. But any stories today? Well, I, I don't know. Did you have a hard time getting up this morning? I did. You know, it reminds me of a story <laughs> about this guy and... His mother was downstairs, and it was a Sunday morning, and she shouted up. She said, Son, 
it's time for you to get up and go to church. And no response. She went to the stairway again and shouted up. She said, son, it's time for you to go to church. And the voice came from upstairs. I don't want to go to church. I hate it. All the people hate me. I refuse to get up and go to church. And his mother came to the stairway and said, you have to get up and go to church and I'm going to give you three reasons. One, it's your obligation. Two, you're 50 years old. And three, you're the pastor. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. In preparing for today, I've decided that preaching one sermon, allegedly to be 30 minutes long, on living with cancer is as challenging as living with cancer. (laughs) At my pharmacy this year, for several months, there's been a big sign at the front door that says, nothing is more important than your health. Now, I understand the wisdom of that statement, and I understand why one can be enthused about such a statement. Health is important. But on behalf of many, I want to say that there is something more important than your health. And that's how you cope with the situation of not having the best of health. That is a far more important task in life. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. I know I can't speak for all cancer patients, but I hope I don't betray or embarrass any. I especially miss Robert Mai this morning, who's returning from a cruise at this moment. I wish he were here. But what I have to say, hopefully representing many cancer patients, is probably also relevant to everyone who is facing some very serious and life-threatening disease or physical condition. And in fact, the issues that lie behind all of this are ultimately important to all of us. They're human issues. They're issues of how to cope with life. And I think they apply to all of us. When Pastor Steve asked me to do this sermon a few months ago, I immediately emailed two of my close friends who were cancer patients with incurable cancer with whom I had regular conversation. And I said, told them what my pastor had asked me to do and asked for their help. Both of them have died. In some ways, I dedicate this sermon in loving memory of Linda Hegg, who died on May 14. She was a friend of 35 years, a dear friend, a wife of an American Baptist pastor in Montana. 
and also to Marjorie Corbin, who died on August 3rd, whom I'd known only 11 years. She was an employee at Fuller Seminary. We were very close and shared much in our cancer journey. And then also to our brother Andrew, who died on September 3rd. These dear people struggled with cancer. I want to talk about three things. How one lives with cancer in relationship to oneself. How one lives with cancer in relationship to family and friends. And how one lives with cancer in relationship to God. First, with relationship to oneself. When one learns that one has cancer, it's a terrifying experience. One doesn't like to hear it. When I knew I had cancer in February of 2002, with all due respect to all of you, That Sunday, we went to a different church. I needed to go somewhere where nobody knew me. But unfortunately, the pastor recognized me in the congregation (laughs) and drew attention to me. But most of the people didn't know me. And it was a wonderful experience that Sunday to be at Second Baptist Church in Los Angeles, pastored by William Epps. But when one faces this reality, one starts to think about one's mortality in a new way. Just for the record, I have colorectal cancer, diagnosed three and a half years ago. I had surgery. It is now metastasized. I have cancer in both lungs. It is medically incurable. I'm in constant daily treatment. I have significant daily negative effects. I've outlived some of the predictions already. And I have no idea how much more life I have. I want to use an illustration because one thing everybody says to me, well, we're all going to die. We know that. But I'm going to use a rather graphic, I hope not inappropriate, illustration in today's world. Knowing that you have incurable cancer, let me liken to having a terrorist bomb strapped on your back. You just don't know when it's going to go off. For the rest of folk, maybe that terrorist bomb will land someday, but you don't think about it as strapped on your back. And facing that reality means one has to learn to deal with something that you've never dealt with before. 
Marjorie Corbin, who died on August 3rd, did type about four lines in her computer before she died. Her husband found it after she died and gave them to me as advice for me. One of the things she typed was, you and your life are not your cancer. Cancer is not you and your life. That's a profound insight. I am much more than my cancer, for which I deeply thank God. Nicholas Walterstorff, who's a philosopher at Yale, had a son who died in a tragic accident, and he wrote a book about his grief called Lament for a Son. And in that book, Nicholas Walterstorff talks about the difference between overcoming and coping. There are many difficulties in life we can overcome. He gives the mundane example of if it's a really hot day, you can go into an air-conditioned place and you overcome a difficulty. But there are some difficulties you can't overcome. One is facing death. You need to learn to cope not to overcome. You need to live with that reality. It's a kind of reality therapy. Marjorie Corbin said that people often said to her, cancer changes everything. It does seem that way. But at the deepest level, it changes only a few things. I am still who I am. And the kind of person one is, is the kind of person you will be if you ever find out that you have a terminal disease. Cancer doesn't change everything, but it does give everything a new perspective. One of the greatest lessons I have learned, I think, is the value of memory and recollection. I revel every day in remembering all the good things of my life, all the wonderful things that I have been given, my family, my friends. I can't travel much anymore, so I think about all the places I have been. I used to be an executive premier flyer with United. I was all over the place lecturing. I never can do that again. But I think about all the places I went, all the people I met, how much joy it brought to my life. The joys and the achievements of the past don't mean I live in the past, but I do celebrate with gratitude what has been. My good friend Keith Josephson, whom I've known since 1957, and Jeanette's good friend, is an investment banker in New York City. And he came to visit us this summer. He was our first visitor who was willing to say, I came to see you because I know I'll never get to see you again. He spent three days with us. It was wonderful. And one of the things he said one day when we were eating out on our deck, 
was the ultimate form of selfishness is self-pity. I must, we must avoid self-pity. Rather, I like the image that I first learned from another old friend of mine, Patrick Alexander, who's a publisher in New York. I'm a prisoner of hope. People like me, and like many of you, are prisoners. Prisoner of incurable cancer. But I'm a prisoner of hope, which I'll talk about a little more later. I'm a prisoner of hope. When I first had cancer, a lot of people talked about the battle with cancer. And I poo-pooed that language. I thought, I don't battle with cancer. My doctors do. My surgeon does. My oncologist does. The medicine does. And I sort of promised myself I would never use the language about battling with cancer. But three and a half years later, I've given in. You do battle with cancer. Every morning when I get out of bed, I have to confess one of my first thoughts is, I wish I could have just one more normal day. Within three minutes, I'm painfully aware of my limitations. Within five minutes, I can predict how the day is going to go. And the battle is, to put it frankly, the will to keep going. And that's an important battle. To say each day, I want to live, I want to enjoy today, I want to push forward with everything I am able to muster. And so you learn the limits of what you can do. There are certain limits. And I try to be sensitive to my limits. Sometimes I violate them. But I try very hard because I know what I can do. I know what I can't do. When I've learned to be firm, I know when to say no. But within those limits, I seek to do those things that are fulfilling and enjoyable and things that will do good for other people. My sister thinks I should quit teaching. I love teaching. It's harder to go to the classroom now. I've always lectured standing up. I now lecture sitting down. But I still love teaching, and apparently I'm still succeeding. So I try to protect my schedule so I can do that and do things that contribute to others, no matter how small. And I've learned the importance of James 4, 13 through 15. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into this city 
and we'll do that or this and spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will do this or do that. The perspective of living one day at a time is one of the most important things that a cancer patient or others like that can learn. It's something we should all learn. I was on an interview with one of the Los Angeles TV channels, I don't remember which one now, after 9-11. And one of the lines I can remember that I said that appeared on the air was, nobody who went to the World Trade Center buildings on September 11th in the morning said, oh, got to go to work. I'm going to die there today. We learn to live one day at a time. Now in relationship to family and friends, I want to say that there's incredible power in the circle of one's support. It is so important. So important. There are many critical groups. Of course, one's medical team. And it is important that you trust your medical team, that you find those persons that you know are taking good care of you. I know that's complex. And when I first had cancer, I got emails every day about what I should do. Sometimes I got so mad, I could hardly stand it. Everybody knew what I should do. But I had to find the medical team that would give me confidence and satisfaction and care. And I must say, I feel enormously blessed by my doctors and nurses and those folk. They're wonderful. Many patients like myself have a chief caregiver. I have the best caregiver in the world. If your caregiver is your husband or wife or a family member, one of the most important things to remember is that you get so caught up in appreciating them as a caregiver that you could communicate that's all they mean to you. And you need to remember that they want to know that they're more than a caregiver They're still your lover, your wife, your friend. You need to affirm all those other relationships that were already there. Family can be very important. Nurture it. We got an email yesterday from a friend of ours who lives in Washington, D.C., whose brother died of cancer. And the family was totally dysfunctional. They couldn't rally together. 
That's heartbreaking. For someone in my position, building family relations is important. Your spouse, your children, your brothers and sisters, your cousins, your aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews, that family circle means a lot. And it's worth nurturing. Many of us have an inner core of very deep friends. Letting them into your space has rich dividends. Letting them walk the journey with you. People with whom you can say anything, be anything, do anything. The ones that you've built over some time deep bonds with. And then we have larger circles of friends. Nurture them too. All of these groups have so much to give to the cancer patient. Rejoice in them. Be grateful for them. And yet, there are the issues of privacy and boundaries. We all need personal space. In my own journey, I have offended some people because I wouldn't let them into my personal space. They've told me off and I've never heard from them again. Say la vie. There's a need for personal space, for some boundaries. You don't have to tell everybody everything. You don't have to share with everything. Everyone, all the emotions that you have, all the problems that you have. It's going to vary from person to person which people can get closer in your space and which people can't. It's very important to have boundaries, to have some privacy. I sometimes, I'm a, I'm a thinker type, so I think about a lot of things. So I think about well, when I get down to those last couple days of life, when I'm still conscious, who do I want around my bed? And some days I think all I want around my bed is my wife and my children. And other days I think, no, I can think of a hundred people I want there. And I go back and forth on that kind of issue. And then, if I may be so bold, I have some perspectives for the family and friends of cancer patients. Don't trivialize what a patient is suffering. We all want to identify, so we say, I know how you feel. Well, there is a level that most of us know in one level of our life or another, people don't know how you feel. And if they keep saying, I know how you feel, or, yeah, I, I, I have that same problem, it trivializes your own journey. 
family and friends respect the boundaries that the patient puts up. There might be times when you could feel put off. You're not being put off. The cancer person just needs a boundary. And finally, don't be afraid to talk about reality. Don't pussyfoot. I want to tell you, this congregation, one of the people here who has blessed me the most, it's young Marion Campbell, wearing that beautiful hat. Almost every Sunday, young Marion comes up to me and says, Dr. Scholler, how was your cancer? And you realize her father died of cancer. Her directness is a gift. She's totally unabashed to ask me exactly what the score is. I like it. Now, if 200 people ask me on Sunday, I get tired of it. You may remember that when I first started coming back to church after my cancer surgery, I always left during the closing hymn because I still didn't have the strength to have everybody ask me how I was doing. But on the other hand, don't be afraid to talk about reality. And finally, living with cancer in relationship to God. Now, this is a big subject. And one, of course, is the classic problem of evil. Why does evil occur if there's a loving God? And if I could answer that question, I'd be on the cover of Time magazine next week. Well, one of the first things I did when I learned I had cancer is I got out. Some of you remember religious tracts? You know what a tract is, some of you younger people? These are little pamphlets. Our church doesn't have one, but a lot of churches would have a track rack. And there'd be a rack out in the foyer with little tracks in, and you're supposed to take these and give them to people, sort of as a witness to the Christian faith. Well, I actually wrote one tract in my life. Now, the real story is that when I was dean of Northern Baptist Seminary, the president had a heart attack and almost died. It just so happened that the next day I had to preach in chapel. I had a sermon all developed, so I scrapped it, sat up all night, prepared a new sermon on why does God allow evil. And then I sent that sermon to Decision Magazine, Billy Graham's magazine, and they accepted it for publication. It was published in 1986. And then the American Tract Society wrote to me and said, 
could we reprint it as a tract? And I said, sure. So I have this little tract, Why Does God Allow Evil and Suffering? And the first thing I did after I learned I had cancer, I thought integrity demanded it. I got out what I had written in 1986, which was, what, 16 years prior to learning I had cancer. And I said, I better see if what I wrote, I actually now believe. Because when I wrote it, I never had faced much tragedy in my life. So I got out my little tract and I read it over. And these are the points I made in the tract. God is not the author or cause of evil. God never promised freedom from pain. God uses pain for God's purposes. We have God's promise of love and comfort. Evil and suffering are not experienced because of one's sin. And God has provided a triumph. And if I may say it, I said to myself, you know, I think it was all right. I wasn't ever much for giving out tracks, but in those days of heavy travel, I rode in a lot of limousines back and forth to the airport. And of course, the first question the limo driver would ask me is, where are you going? Second, what are you going to do? And then they'd find out I was a professor of religion. And I'd say 95% of the limo drivers wanted to talk about God. So I carried these in my pocket, and I'd say to the limo driver, you've probably seen a track before, and they'd usually laugh. And I'd say, I'm embarrassed to give you a track, but in this case, I wrote it. And the limo driver would always say, I'll read it. I don't know if he did. But I read this over and I thought, well, those things are true. I can't solve the problem of evil. I can't solve it for cancer. I can't solve it for Katrina. I can't solve it for the tsunami. I can't solve it for anything that happens in anyone's life. But biblical faith teaches us that God is not the author of evil. That God is there to help us cope with this. And that God in Jesus Christ has provided ultimately the triumph of eternal life. So I began to reflect on the difference between fatalism and trust in God. Now, I know quite a bit about classic fatalism, which existed in the ancient Mediterranean world at the time of the New Testament. I've read most of the pagan texts about fatalism. The difference between fatalism and trust in God at the core is that in fatalism, everything happens absolutely without reason, and with no personal care. Trust in God is a way of saying that things happen and that God 
ultimately achieves God's purposes and that there is a person who cares. And yet we have to recognize that God's ways are well above our ways. I love that climactic text at the end of Romans chapter 11, which reads like this, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul wrote those words after he struggled for three chapters of Romans trying to solve a problem and couldn't. God's ways are beyond our ways. But the Bible is clear about God's providential care. Psalm 40, which is one of my favorite psalms, has been especially meaningful to me. Let me read the first paragraph and the last paragraph. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. That's an anchor for me. And then the psalm ends with this. But as for me, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. And I think of those words virtually every day. But the greatest anchor text of my life has been Romans chapter 8. I keep thinking over and over again, is there a better anchor text for me? No. Romans 8, 18 to 39, I won't read the whole paragraph, but it starts like this, and I'll read a few verses. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now that alone is a very, very powerful line, is it not? Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And then, of course, that famous line, and we know that in all things, 
God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. A prisoner of hope, we await the redemption of our body. We trust on the Spirit who prays for us with groans that can't even be put into words and believe that God works all things for good. There are two horizons of hope, this life and eternity. Death is an evil. The Bible always says death is an evil. There's something in our culture that's, even in church culture, that's tried to say, oh, wonderful death. Death is never wonderful. And no matter how we dress it up and make the dead body look attractive in the casket. Death is an evil, but it must be faced. We don't embrace it for the evil and the ugliness. But what we want to embrace is the power of life. God is the giver of life, both in this earthly, earthy existence and in the reality of eternal life. And eternal life is something one enters now in the promise of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Earlier I referred to Nick Waltersdorf saying we can't overcome death, we have to cope with it. That's true. But one of the ways we cope with it in the Christian faith is to believe that God is the giver of eternal life, which begins even now. And so, as an incurable cancer patient, I give myself to God. My mother died in June. She loved to say, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die to get there. That's true. It's right and proper that we want to live and that we fight and struggle to live. God is the giver of life, even in this existence. Embrace it. God is not the giver of death. Death is the consequence of evil. Thus, it's all right to fight for life. It's all right to want to live. It's not a rejection of the joys of eternal life. I'm quite frankly not somebody who says, oh, I can hardly wait till I die and can walk the golden streets. I don't want to die. God is the giver of life. We should embrace it. Marion Riley Campbell, young Marion's mother, tragically lost her husband to cancer, shared with me about how the experiences she had of crisis and agony through his journey, each one prepared her to face the next crisis. Each thing we face in life of loss, of grief, of suffering, of pain, helps us prepare for the next chapter. I like Edwin Markham, a poet born in 1852, 
One of his poems reads like this. Death may serve as well as victory to shake the soul and let the glory out. When the great oak is straining in the wind, the boughs drink in new beauty, and the trunk sends down a deeper root on the windward side. Only the soul that knows the mighty grief can know the mighty rapture. Sorrows come to stretch our spaces in the heart for joy. Nels Foray, who was a famous theologian many, many years ago, many considered him a very liberal theologian. But there's a great story about Nels Foray, who I think at the time was teaching at Andover Newton Theological School, affiliated with American Baptists. One of his students, who was married, He and his wife had just recently had a baby. The baby wasn't doing well, and the baby died in the middle of the night. The student didn't know what to do. He called his professor, Nels Foray, at midnight and said, Our baby just died. Nels Foray went over to their student apartment, and he sat there for two hours. He never said a word. He just sat there. And then he got up to go, and he said, God is crying too. I find that very powerful. God is crying, Jesus wept, and the Holy Spirit groans. We have a caring God. I also like, and I want to close with the poem of Minnie Louise Haskins, born in 1875, a British poet. And King George VI made this very famous in his Christmas broadcast of 1939. You realize that's at the beginning of World War II. In which he quoted... Minnie Louise Haskins' poem. I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, Give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, Go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than light and safer in a known way. May God bless all of you in your journey of life as you commit yourself to the realities of life, the joys that God gives you, and the promise of God's triumph. Amen. Thank you, David. I was sitting there saying, wow, we've received a gift today. And I was wondering, should we clap or not? And I'm glad we did. 
We're going to conclude the service uh, in a few moments, but what I want to do now is we're going to stand in just a moment and sing a song that you know, and uh, we're going to have a prayer for healing. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to ask our leaders and our leadership staff to come forward, and they're going to spread out across the front here uh, just to stand with you. And if you are living with cancer or facing surgery this week, Elwood, that would be you and others, if you're sick... I invite you to come forward during the song when we all stand together. I'm going to invite you to come forward and uh, to stand here. And after we've all had time to sing and gather, I want to pray a prayer for us, a prayer of healing, that God's will be done in our lives and that God touch us and heal us. There's a lot said in Scripture about healing, and before I pray, I will read some of those verses. But one of them is from someone who knew Jesus personally, and he wrote this. Are any of you... Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. And their prayer of faith, offered in faith, will heal the sick and the Lord will make them well. And anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. And so I'm going to ask, as we stand to sing in just a moment, for Pastor Gene Payton to come with me. As you come forward, if you're sick, living with cancer, facing surgery, perhaps you're depressed, maybe there's some emotional or something other than physical that you want to come forward and be prayed for. We're going to ask you to do that. And if you would like to be anointed with oil to come forward to the table, Pastor Gene and I will be here uh, to anoint you as we do this. So let's stand and sing. Again, this is an invitation to you. If you're sick, living with cancer, I want you to come forward as we join.